You're listening to the Sunday podcast from LifePoint Church in Santan Valley, Arizona. We hope you're encouraged by today's message. For more information, visit us online at lifepointaz.com. Good morning. Would you join me here as we prepare our hearts to take the Lord's Supper together? While you're preparing, if you're getting juice and bread there at your home, I want to read for you out of 1 Corinthians. In this time at the church of Corinth, Paul had gotten word that communion had been something that people did to get drunk or to satisfy their physical hunger. There was no reverence to it. There was no remembrance to it. It was just another thing you did in religion. Yes, that early in the church, tradition had already settled in. Apathy had set in. And remembering the Lord's blood and body, which redeemed us and brought us back into relationship with him, had already lost its significance. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper, for in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What am I going to do with you? Shall I praise you? In this, I will not praise you. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that he, the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take of the bread and eat together. Lord, we thank you for your body. Lord, that this isn't just some spiritual thing. It's not something that is mystical in any way, Lord. You are very much human. And Lord, it was that body that you sacrificed and took the pain and the weight of sin upon yourself. And as we partake together now here, we remember that. Paul goes on in verse 25 and says, In the same way, he took the cup also. After supper, he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's take the cup and drink together. Father, thank you for, your, for, your, for the blood of your son, Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that as it ran down that cross, it covers my head and every head of every human. May we not forget the significance of that, Lord, to be covered. Would we examine our hearts? Would we examine our minds? Would we repent where repentance is needed? In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Well, here we are, one week after Easter. Things are still uh, certainly different, and uh, there is hope here. That we are opening soon in phases, right? We'll be able to meet again slowly and gradually. And so there's lots of questions surrounding the church about this idea. What do we do? What does normal look like? And honestly, my prayer has been, and your pastors and elders here at LifePoint, is that we, as the church, define a new normal, right? We don't want it to go back to be the same old. I, I don't, and I'm sure you don't, 
as you have seen a difference in how you've communicated it, hopefully, uh, if, if you have family at home, you have seen more time together. You have seen more dinners together. You have seen more engagement with one another. And heaven forbid we go back to the normal of busyness, lives so busy we can't eat dinner, we can't engage, we're too tired, we're too sick. Why in the world would we want to leave what God has given us? And so the real question has to become, how do we balance this new normal when we are sort of released, uh, as I said in an email earlier this week, back into the wild of civilization? As we just came off of Easter, this thought came to me that those disciples, those men who had followed Jesus so closely, who had left everything, Matthew left probably the most lucrative career, The disciples left everything, their names and who they were in their towns. They were mocked and made fun of. All of the Pharisees and those whose opinions counted hated them, saw their teacher as a a false prophet, as a liar. And then there's this guy, Peter, right? As Jesus, on the night that he's betrayed, denies him three times and Christ told him he would. But then we also get to see Peter after the resurrection of Christ sit with the Lord. And the Lord three times to redeem his three times of denial says, Peter, feed my sheep. If you love me, feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. And Peter was like, okay, I get it. I get it. I see. And he realizes he's been redeemed. He's been forgiven. His repentant heart has led him into that. And as I think about us going back out and I think about us as a church changing what's normal, changing what's good, I was drawn to the disciples. And we know the story in the upper room, right? They go and they wait. God's spirit comes down upon them. They begin to spread out. They begin to preach and teach and do miraculous uh, things like Christ did while he was here on the earth. And the church grew exponentially. They loved their neighbors sacrificially. When one had plenty and the others didn't, they gave uh, sacrificially so that all in Christ's family would have what they needed. They went to the stake. They went to the Colosseum for the name of the Lord. They saw their lives as something that they would gladly give up in order to know him, that he was worthy of their very life, their very breath. And so what I want to look at here as we are in such an unprecedented time is that disciple Peter. He wrote two books that we get in the New Testament. One is 2 Peter 3. So if you have a Bible, open it up to 2 Peter verse 3. Chapter 3, I'm sorry, Second Peter chapter 3. And we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 13. The sermon is titled, One Week Later. And the question that's sort of all, on all of our minds, what comes next? What comes next? What do we do? How will we react? According to the president's plan on Thursday, there's these phases, right? And each governor has to implement them based off of his state. How will it be when they say, okay, you can go meet again. You can meet at the church. You can meet at restaurants. You have to follow these rules because you're in phase one, two, or three, but go ahead. Do you think you will embrace it and run out and do it exactly how you did before? I don't think so. I think there's still this underlying sense in everybody that this thing hasn't been defeated, right? There is no vaccine. There is no uh, herd immunity. We do know that it is an incredibly deadly virus. 
And so what will we do? What will it look like? There's a lot of questions around that. Imagine those disciples had those questions. And so Peter here in this time, he's written this quite a bit later after uh, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And I want you to see his uh, direction and his uh, words of wisdom to the church. Peter was sort of known as the guy who loved justice. He wanted to see justice done. He wanted to see that uh, God's will would be done above all else. And so he talks a lot about the wrath of God. And you're going to see some of that here. But I want you to see above what he's talking about with wrath is the importance of understanding who God is, especially in changing times, because that's what he's going to be talking about. So 2 Peter 3, verse 1. Dear friends, this is how my second letter to you. This is now my second letter to you. I have written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. First of all, you must understand that in the last days scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, Where is the coming that your Lord has promised? Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has been since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed. And out of water and by water, by these waters also, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. It's talking about the flood. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, that he doesn't want anyone to perish but everyone to come to repentance. That right there is the key of everything Peter is saying. So I don't, I don't want to just blow past that line. He is not slow as some would think slowness means. He wants everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with the roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? Well, you ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. So this is a very uh, sort of apocalyptic type section uh, scripture and it can be it has been seen that way and interpreted that way and it's uh, one of those sections of scripture that in a time like this when you're going through an apocalyptic type event that involves the entire world when we're seeing increased activities of earthquakes uh, tornadoes that just tore through I believe the Midwest and then you've got this I don't know if you've seen it but a massive massive swarm of locusts up in Africa that is just destroying millions and millions of crops for the people up there. And you have to sort of stop and shake your head, uh, scratch your head a little bit and say, hmm, this feels a lot like the prophetic books of the Bible. And so one of the things I want us to look at, though, is exactly what Peter talks about here, is what would you do? What do you do 
when it comes to understanding a time that the Lord will return. Now, I'm not going to say it's this time because the Bible tells me specifically that no man knows. Jesus said while he was on this earth, only the Father knows. Not even he knew while he was on this earth. Only the Father knows. So I'm not going to speculate. And you know what? There's really no purpose in speculation. There's no benefit that comes from it. But you would think in the Bible, as you talk about the wrath and the judgment of God, who talks about it the most? Is it Peter? Is it Paul? If you look in Scripture, it's actually Jesus Christ. Talks about wrath and judgment nearly 300 times. 300 times he talks about wrath and judgment. And so as Peter is bringing this up, I want you to see and understand that he is being very purposeful with his words in what he is wanting us to be and how he is calling us to live, how he was calling the people there in his time to live and for those who would read his letter in the future. You see, as we look at scripture and as we go into this, we often want to treat it like a buffet. We, we want to take the things that look good and leave the things that are going to be too much, too much to handle, too much to deal with, or I just don't like the way they taste. You see, when a society as a whole or an individual person rejects the idea of a judgment day, there becomes severe ramifications for that person and for the society. We want our God to be loving. We want our God to be kind. We want our God to be merciful, but not judging. Don't be judgmental. Don't, ha don't punish. Forgive. Be gracious. And he is that. But he cannot be that unless there is judgment for the sin. And we've spoken on that, and I don't want to go deep into that, but what I want you to see is that every human being, no matter where you come from, has some sense of justice, right? We all have some sense of justice. We, we grow up with it. You don't really know how you got it, how you came to it. Little kids, you'll see it in. If you give one child a single piece of licorice, and then right in front of them hand their brother or sister, similar age, two or three pieces, what happens? Instant injustice, right? Sometimes I do this just for the fun of letting my kids know that life is not fair. And they look and they're like, what? How? How, How could that happen? How could you do that? And in their little hearts, they know that, it, that there is an injustice happening to them. There is an evil being perpetrated upon them. And where did they learn that from, right? Where do they learn this concept of fairness and justice? Some of it is taught by us, but there's also sort of this internal thing that says I, I am due a certain amount of candy or respect or love. If you read the history of any country, you'll see thousands and in some case millions of people who are oppressed, violated, and beat down. And there are cries for justice. There are cries that regimes that would do that to their people would be brought down, would be destroyed. Cries for justice. You don't have to be a Christian to recognize injustice in the world. But if you want to recognize who the author of this world is, who the creator of your mind is, who the very foundation of which you base what justice is, if you want to get to know him, then you do need to look in the Bible. 
You need to look at who this Jesus Christ was, this one that Peter is so anxiously and excitedly talking about, his second coming. When we get rid of a doctrine of judgment, we realize how arbitrary and self-serving Jesus becomes. We realize how much we use religion, we use uh, even our gatherings, we use uh, the Proverbs or the Psalms or the things that make us feel good, and we realize, why am I serving him? Am I serving him 100% because of who he is? Or is there a part of me that serves him for what I get out of the relationship? When you get rid of the doctrine of judgment, and you reject the parts of Christ you don't like. You don't have a God worthy to be worshipped. You just have an idol. And so I want you to see here Peter, as he probably one of the best human beings on earth to explain the relationship with Jesus Christ, someone who stuck his foot in his mouth so many times with Christ, and yet at the same time was the first to be bold and speak up like in Caesarea Philippi, right? Who do the people say that I am? You're the son of the living God. He had an incredible amount of boldness, and I guess sometimes when you see successful people, there's many failures that you don't see, but with Peter, we get to see his failures and his successes. So one of the things that we see here about Judgment Day is it sounds pretty terrible, right? Peter doesn't paint this pretty picture of it. It says, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. That sounds pretty awful. And of course, it is. And the Bible has other places where it talks about a number of things that will happen. But I want you to see something here, the language, right? It says there is a day of the Lord. The judgment day is called the day of the Lord. I want you to see why it's called that. If you have a birthday or an anniversary or a day that is special to you or your family, That is your day. In our family, on your birthday, you get to pick breakfast, lunch, and dinner wherever you want to go, right? Unfortunately, it's often fast food restaurants with my children. Um, I try to find everything like Ruth Chris Steakhouse, you know, for breakfast, obviously, and then move nicer than that as we go up. Um, So we have to save all year for my birthday. But the children, it is their day, right? It is their day. And so when we talk about it, this is Serena's day. And when Peter says, this is the day of the Lord, he is saying, this day, this culmination of all the events of human history, this is his day. This is his day. And the reason we struggle with that is because we struggle to understand that he is at the center of everything in this world. He is the leading star. He is the best player on the team. He is the best actor. He is the best teacher. He is the very foundation. He is the center of everything. And what's tough is we have to move ourselves out of that spot to be able to understand and see that's not us. And we know that. And if you've been to church for a while, maybe you heard that, and that sounds like a churchy thing to say. But the fact is... It's not just unbelievers who need to move themselves away from the center, even those who come to Christ. So often we come to him with the idea that he will make our life better, that we are believers, that we have prayed, that we have sacrificed for him. 
And what we do is we just put ourselves right back in the center. Remember those bumper stickers that were big quite a while back? Jesus is my co-pilot. Jesus is my co-pilot. I mean, I'm still in charge. I'm controlling the gas and the brake. I control where we go. But I let him give me advice every now and again. Isn't that what the co-pilot does? They give advice. You're the pilot. You're the one steering this ship or this vehicle. My co-pilot just helps me navigate. And if I, if I feel that he's on, I'll take that route. If not, I'll go ahead and take my own route. This idea of centeredness is central to realizing this idea of judgment. The more you put yourself in the supportive role of your relationship with Christ, the more his supremacy begins to grow in your heart. The more that his navigation, his direction, his leading becomes primary to you. It overrules any of your dreams that you have for yourself or your family. It overrules goals that you might have, jobs that you might have adventures that you'd like to take. That's why he says that those who believe will speed the day or hasten the day of the Lord. There is a desire to see it, to see a day when our Lord will come back, when he will make things right, when he will uphold his creation. And then there's this other person and right now, we're, we're trapped in this other spot right now as believers and unbelievers alike because of what's going on. And this person is the one who fears what could be. What, what is the outcome? What are the possibilities? And they don't move. They're stuck. They wait to be told what to do by whatever talking head is currently saying what makes sense or whatever the crowd's doing, you know, right? Jump on social media. What's the crowd doing? Okay, I'll do that. Fear has them bound up, trapped, and unable to think. Christ said, I have come to set you free from that. You are currently the center. You are currently the pilot of your life. Would you let go of it? Would you let me take control? Would you let me direct and guide you? In scripture, it says, I have become the least so that I may be the greatest. And it's a funny concept because in letting go of all your dreams and your control of the future and giving it to God and saying, God, what would you have me do? In that humility, he actually raises you up to anything to something greater than you could have ever become with you at the center. The day of the Lord is the day we finally find ourselves because he has become the center. Now, Peter is a good teacher. I said that earlier, and I want you to see here uh, why he's such a good teacher. Immediately, he recognizes that there are plenty of people who don't believe this. They're gonna have ideas. Uh, objections to this idea of a judgment day. And so he starts off by talking and saying, there will be those who scoff and mock, he promised. Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. He's got in, incredible insight here, right? He recognizes that intellectually, it's going to be difficult to accept this doctrine that there is a time of judgment coming, that we will have a problem with that. And so he goes back and says, your problem isn't really with judgment as much as it is you have a problem with creation. You have a problem that there was a creator. 
You have a problem that if there was a creator, the creator has the right to say what he will about his creation. You see, if we just believe that everything is chance and everything is random, then we don't have to submit our will to anybody. We stay at the center. Our desires, our purposes stay there. But as soon as I recognize that there is creation, that there is one who spoke light into existence and the waters and the mountains and all of it, I have to let go of what's important. What I believe will save me. What I believe is good. And I have to let go of that. They deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for judgment. So he's saying, do you believe the universe was created? Or do you believe it's a result of accidental forces? That it is a a happy mistake that you're here? If you believe God created the world, then you have to believe he has the right and the ability to judge it. It's a consistent line of thought. If he created, then he has the right to judge his own work, right? If he created, and he's the author, so if you go to a book, you you can judge a book and you can uh, read a book and give your view of it, but only the author has the right to go and change it and to judge it. It's his work. We are his craftsmanship. Second objection is more personal than intellectual. Uh, Verse eight says, do not forget this one thing, dear friends, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but that everyone would come to repentance, that everyone would come. This is one of the hardest things for an unbelieving world and a believer to come to grips with. And that's this problem with pain, the suffering, the death, the things that just don't make sense. One minute they're there, the next minute they're gone. And we wonder how, why, God, are you waiting so long? Why do you continue to let evil reign so rampantly? We begin to judge him. We begin to tell him what goodness is. We begin to look at his slowness and think he is missing the mark of what it means to be good. Think about that for a minute. If you've ever had a thought, if it's ever crossed your mind when you think of God, what are you doing, how dare you? That's a thought that says, Lord, let me show you how you should run this world right now. Do not think of slowness as some count slowness. Peter is saying, Understand how small and minute your perspective on the world is, right? If my 10-year-old comes to me and says, uh, I want a bike, and here's the bike, and I want it, I want it now, right? You say, okay, great, that's excellent, we can do that. Because of this stuff we've got going on, and then we're out of town next weekend, and this and that will probably be about three weeks, right? They just fall to the ground in a heap. No, I'll be dead in three weeks, I couldn't possibly wait that long because from their perspective, three weeks is an eternity. It's just forever, right? And so with their limited understanding, you look and say, that's nothing to wait, but with their understanding, that's forever. It's an eternity. I want you to look at life. I want you to look at history. I want you to take a moment and realize if God is eternal, 
and the best I could really hope for is a hundred years here on this earth, how is my perspective versus an eternal perspective? How, how far can I see? How much can my brain comprehend versus an eternal perspective? And so Peter says, I want you to understand this. Slowness is not, uh, to God, is not slow as some would think of slowness. Think about when you gave your life to Christ. What year was it? 2010, 2001, 1993, 1980, 1968, 1950. Think about the year you gave your life to Christ. What if he had come the year before? Where were you? Who were you? Where was your mind? Where was your life? What was important to you? What if he hadn't waited? See, what Peter is saying is it's a selfish thing to just demand that the Lord return. It's a selfish thing to go before him and say, figure it out. If you're a good and almighty God, come and fix it already. He's saying those who know me, those who are my children, and those who have made me the center of their lives, that they may look forward to the day that I come. But they have a job to do until that day is here. They have a job. You have a job to do. And in a culture and a climate right now that needs more than ever to understand that they are not the center of the world, that there is an almighty God who loves them and has had a plan in motion since the first thought entered their mind. And this is us. This is us right now. This is our time. There will be people who read about our church, the Christians in America, the Christians in the world, and how they responded to this global event did we cower away to our buildings? Did we hide ourselves in our homes? Did we lock our doors from those who were sick and needy? Did the wealthy Christians, were they generous with their finances and the material things they had to help those who had nothing? Or did we hide and, and bury our treasures so that they'd be safe? You never realize that you're in history until you're past it, right? You don't realize that the decisions you're making today are decisions that will be looked at down the road. And as just one individual, it seems like, well, whatever I do is inconsequential. But in the body of Christ, you're not just one individual. You're a member of that body. You're a part of that body. And so there's not just one calling that I'm speaking out to every Christian here. There is hundreds of areas of the body of Christ that you can thrive in. And when Christ is the center of your life, you can go before him and say, where, God? Where would you have me be? We're going to close here. And the last objection, maybe the most important objection, looks like this. Judgment. It's too harsh. It's too cruel. I believe in a God of love. On judgment day, who passes? Who passes on judgment day? Who gets in, right? Judgment day, there's a judgment going on. That means there are those who are accepted, there are those who are not. There are those who will be set free and those who will be locked up. Do the good people, 
Are the ones with an excellent record, are those the ones who get in? That Remember, he says, to be living holy and blameless lives, he will come like a thief in the night. You will not know the hour or the day that he will come. So is that what it is? Is it those who, you know, live those holy lives? That's who passes the judgment? Those who exercise self-control? The people who have never gotten into the bad things? I want you to realize something here today, friend. Wherever you're at with the Lord, wherever you're at right now, wherever you're sitting, wherever you're listening to this from, that the one that God is coming for, the one that the Almighty King, when he returns, is he's looking for the one who is repentant. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but wants everyone, everyone to come to him. The answer is repentance. He's not looking for those with a perfect record. He's not looking for those who preach the gospel. He's not looking for those who attended church or read their Bible every day. He's looking for those with a repentant heart that have come before him and said, Lord, I am not the sinner. I recognize my own mind and heart and I see the evil that's in it. I lay it before you and I exchange it for yours for your life, your mind, to be clothed in righteousness, the Bible says. See, Peter knew that times were changing. Peter knew that people needed to understand that this wasn't about following rules, that it wasn't the best people got in. He said, you will look forward to the day because you will understand that when he is your center, when he is your everything, then there will be a sweet peace that will come over the earth. But don't be too anxious for it because his timeline is much different than ours. His understanding of time is much more infinite than ours. And so while you're here, teach and love your neighbor. Sacrifice for your neighbor. When you have the ability to give, give to your neighbor. And every day you can pray for your neighbor. We can show love when we are given hatred. We can show kindness when someone is cruel. They seem like Sunday school things, right? Turn the other cheek. But they aren't Sunday school things. They're the very foundation of what it means to be a child of God. And apart from the power of God, apart from his Holy Spirit, we can't do it. We're incapable. He is a patient and loving God. There's a place in 1 John 3 where it says, we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Whoever hopes for this purity. A day of judgment is coming. It could be today, it could be tomorrow. It could be in another thousand years. Whenever it is and whenever it is, I want to be found working and ready and loving those that God has put in my path. If you're watching this and you say, I want to give my life to the Lord. I don't want to live another day being the center of my life. 
then follow these words with me. You pray them out loud wherever you're at. Don't pray them in your head. Pray them out loud. God, I come before you and I repent. I repent of demanding to be in charge. I repent of letting sin take control of my life. I repent of who I have been and I need you, Lord. I need you more than I need my next breath. Would you take the sin away from me? Would the body and the blood of Jesus Christ be mine? And would you clothe me in your righteousness, dear God? Help me to see and move forward through your Holy Spirit. May you purify the things in my life that are no good. And in my weaknesses, Lord, would you become my strength? In Jesus' name. If you just prayed that with us, then I encourage you, reach out, support at LifePointAZ. We've got an email set up. We'll have pastors call you. You can reach out in the comment section. But the fact of the matter is that apart from Jesus, apart from who he is, who he was, and who he will forever be, there is no hope, there is no joy. There is only imitation. So praise God on this glorious day. Praise God for the air in your lungs. Praise God for the family that's around you or the friends or the community that he's put you in because all glory, power, and honor is to him. We'll see you next week.